Okay, welcome back, everybody. I hope you had a nice break and a snack. Um, we're going to finish out our, our program with two really terrific talks. Um, it's my great pleasure to introduce our next speaker, uh, Dr. Annie Antar, who's at Johns Hopkins University, where she's an assistant professor. She received her MD and PhD at Vanderbilt and then went to Hopkins, where she did medicine and infectious diseases training. And really, since the beginning of the COVID pandemic, she's been very engaged in, um, in COVID and long COVID in people living with HIV. And we thought it would be great to hear an update today on this topic of long COVID and HIV. So Annie, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for that great introduction, Dr. Courier. Um, yeah, so my name is Annie Antar. I'm an infectious diseases physician scientist, and my research interests are really centered on understanding how viruses cause disease. Um, so in the spring of 2020, I started working with Dr. Yuka Manabe here at Hopkins on a longitudinal cohort of people recovering from COVID-19. Um, that was my entry. So I became really interested in understanding how and why people developed long COVID in the middle of 2020 when I first started hearing reports in the media about long COVID, and also from seeing our own data that we were collecting in our own cohort, um, showing that the symptoms of COVID persisted longer than influenza, and that females in our cohort took longer to recover than males. Um, and just personally, my own spouse developed POTS about five years ago, and it took actually a couple of years to get the diagnosis and to see a physician. So I've witnessed the uphill battle. It's been um, for people who have kind of these illnesses that are not well known or invisible illnesses. Um, so I've seen firsthand how fatigue and headaches and brain fog can affect home and family and work life. And I'm really motivated to try to understand long COVID so that we as a society can know how best to prevent it and hopefully one day to treat it effectively. So here at Hopkins back in 2020, we modified and extended our study to follow people in our cohort for two years. And we incorporated long COVID specific surveys into our study in consultation with Hannah Davis, who co-founded the patient-led research collaborative for long COVID and was an early patient researcher, really at the vanguard of defining long COVID and advocating for long COVID research. Now, I'm also a clinician, and like many of you listening today, 100% um, of my clinic patients are people living with HIV. And we all know that people living with HIV have higher rates of inflammation and often can have higher rates of comorbidities. Um, and many of us wanna be able to counsel our patients about their risk for long COVID. So I started a second cohort focused on long COVID and HIV with funding from AMFAR, which is the Foundation for AIDS Research, and with the help of Dr. Michael Peluso from UCSF and Dr. Alan Landy from Rush. And so today, I'm excited to tell you what we currently know about long COVID and people living with HIV, um, mostly from the literature, and I'll also tell you a little bit about my own study as well. So I have no relevant financial uh, relationships to disclose. Um, so today, I really hope you come away with an up-to-date understanding of what's known about long COVID in people living with HIV. So um, we'll go over EMR data on HIV and long COVID, and we'll also spend some time talking about emerging data on neurocognitive long COVID outcomes in people living with HIV. Um, but first, I want to just um, start with the foundation of understanding HIV as a risk factor for acute COVID. So here's a question for you all. Are people living with HIV at increased risk for hospitalization and death during acute COVID? <clears throat> yes, no, or it's not known. So yes, um, 
yes is the right answer. Um, so most of you got that right. And I just wanted to make sure everyone, especially in this audience, which are which takes care of patients and may see um, a lot of people with HIV, just to understand that HIV is a risk factor for worse outcomes during acute COVID. Um, so there are two reports uh, that are mentioned and kind of referenced in this slide right here, both published in 2021 that really answered this question. So the first one was an EMR study from the National COVID Cohort Collaborative or the N3C um, of 54 health systems in the United States. And after adjusting for age, sex, race, smoking, you know, comorbidities, uh, they showed that people living with HIV are at higher risk of hospitalization and death with adjusted odds ratios of 1.2 and 1.3 essentially. And then the second study um, is one published by the World Health Organization also in 2021. Um, most of this data actually was contributed by South Africa, but 23 other countries also contributed data. And in this study, um, it captured about 15,000 people living with HIV and compared to them to um, about 10 times that number living without HIV. And in that study, having HIV was independently associated with a higher risk of death, um, even after adjusting for age, sex, uh, disease severity and comorbidities. And here on the right is a figure from that World Health Organization report in which we see that the adjusted um, hazard ratio and confidence intervals for um, HIV as a risk factor for um, mortality in during acute COVID. Um, so there have been many other studies in this space, um, HIV as a factor, as a risk factor for acute COVID, and they've identified risk factors for poor outcomes. Um, and I'm listing a few here with some references below that you can uh, peruse if interested. And just to note that IDSA maintains a really great learning resource for COVID-19 with specific updated um, topics on HIV and COVID-19 here at this website here at the bottom. Um, so the risk factors um, identified include the usual risk factors for COVID in the general population, including age and comorbidities. Um, but specific to HIV, we know that having a lower CD4 count at the time of COVID diagnosis is a risk factor for poor outcomes. And that's been shown in several studies. Um, and then there's um, a couple that show that your CD4 nadir, if it's lower, um, puts you at risk for uh, worse outcomes. Um, and then even fewer show that an unsuppressed viral load is a risk factor too. So basically to summarize, for acute COVID-19, it's well established now that at least in the pre-Omicron era that living with HIV is a risk factor for hospitalization and death. Um, and that the typical COVID-19 risk factors like age and comorbidities um, matter and also HIV specific risk factors like your current CD4 count. Now, what about long COVID in people with living with HIV? So there's many reasons that we could go into to think of um, why people with HIV might be more at risk for long COVID. Um, and so here's um, on this slide is just a summary of what they are. Um, having more severe COVID, um, chronic comorbidities, um, which we commonly see in our population, um, socioeconomic factors, um, HIV virus specific activity, baseline inflammation um, due to chronic HIV. Um, and then the ones that we're not quite sure of are the ones that are here in question marks. So, um, so there's many reasons why one might think that people with HIV would be more susceptible to long COVID. So now here's another question for you all. Um, do we know yet? Do we have this answer? Are people living with HIV at increased risk for long COVID? Yes, no, or is it currently unknown? Okay, so yes and unknown. And actually, I think both of those are great answers. So I'd accept yes when it comes to the USA and unknown if we're talking about a global population and you'll see why soon. 
So in the next section, I'm just gonna uh, cover four studies that address this question. Um, so here in the first study, this was presented at Croy this year by Dr. Chen Liang at the University of South Carolina. Um, the group there used a large EMR database to show that people living with HIV who got COVID in the pre-vaccine era do indeed have worse outcomes over 12 months of follow-up than people with HIV who did not get COVID. So in here, they're not comparing people with HIV to people without HIV. They're just saying people with HIV who got COVID or who didn't. Um, so again, they used um, data from the N3C, the National COVID Cohort Collaborative. Um, this is EMR data um, from all over the United States. Um, it included about 5,600 people living with HIV who had a diagnosis of COVID in the pre-vaccine era, so before February 2021, compared it with historical controls and then contemporary non-COVID controls of people living with HIV. And they followed each person for 12 months after their diagnosis and used multiple logistic regression analyses. They found that people with HIV who get COVID are, are more likely, um, definitely more likely to have new pulmonary, renal, neuropsychological, and cardiovascular um, incident diagnoses over that year than people without HIV who never got COVID. Um, so this is saying that in the pre-vaccine era, um, getting COVID definitely um, leads to worse outcomes. And this has been shown nicely in the general population by several groups, including uh, Dr. Ziad Al-Ali's group. Um, so the question that most of us has is, does long COVID disproportionately affect people with living HIV? So let's compare people with HIV to people without HIV. And so the first group to really address this question was Dr. Michael Peluso, Tim Henrik, Steve Deeks, and the link, the people working at the LINK cohort, and that's based out of UCSF. And they put a series of papers um, addressing this question in their cohort. Um, so um, in these two manuscripts that are referenced here at the bottom of the slide, uh, they examined about 54 people living with HIV, compared them to about a, um, a little over 100 or 200 people without HIV. Um, and so their message has kind of refined um, over the course of actually three papers. I'll talk about the third one later. Um, at first, they found in um, analyses that it seemed like people with HIV were more likely to have long COVID. Um, but later in later studies, when they included more people and then actually adjusted for more factors, they found that when it comes to general long COVID, so any newer worsening symptom at four or more months after COVID, it looks like HIV is not um, a risk factor for that. Um, the subtle message from their most recent paper is that um, that message might be different if you're looking at neurocognitive outcomes and just looking at neurocognitive long COVID. But overall, in this small study, they didn't see a huge overwhelming, uh, that HIV was a huge, huge overwhelming risk factor. But the limitation here is that it's, it's really a small cohort, and it's really hard to adjust um, appropriately between the people with and without HIV. And so what we really need is larger EMR um, studies. And that's what we have here. So this is work that's out as a preprint. And it was also presented at CROI this year by Dr. George Yandua and Grace McCompsey at Case Western. So it's a large EMR study um, um, that examined EMR, sorry, EMR study from the Trinetics database, um, looking at dozens of people at health or dozens of healthcare across the United States. So again, this is this is just in the United States. And they pulled data from the beginning of the pandemic through September of 2022, um, which included 3 million people with a confirmed um, SARS-CoV-2 infection diagnosis. And in that population of 3 million, they found 28,000 people living with HIV. So this is quite um, one of the larger studies of people with HIV. Um, and they created a propensity-matched 
uh, cohort of people without HIV um, and match them on many factors, you know, age and sex, ethnicity, BMI, specific comorbidities like diabetes and CKD, things like that. So it's a very well-matched cohort. Um, and then they examined the record looking at 30 days after the diagnosis of COVID forward. So they're not looking at the acute, they're looking at what happens after 30 days and later than that. And they found um, that people living with HIV were um, more likely to complain of many symptoms, all the symptoms that they reported, including fatigue and cognitive impairment and body aches compared to people without HIV who were propensity matched. Um, they also found that people with HIV were more likely to die and to have incident diagnoses of diabetes, heart disease, malignancy, uh, thrombosis. You can see this list here, um, and that's taken from their um, from their study. And importantly, um, I'm making this point at the bottom here. Um, about nine percent of these 28,000 people with HIV uh, were vaccinated before they got COVID, so they had a, a nice population that were vaccinated beforehand, and they were able to show that. Um, vaccination does decrease the risk of these symptoms and, and all these outcomes in people living with HIV. So I think that's um, great data showing that um, vaccination in people living with HIV um, does decrease your risk of long COVID. And so, and then in the final study, so those were all studies in the United States. And so, um, you know, it's in, we wanna know also about people living with HIV who are outside of the United States. And uh, this is what we have in the published literature so far. Um, so it's a study examining post-acute outcomes um, in South Africa. So this was um, a study put on by the national, I think, communicate, it's, like, it's basically like our CDC in South Africa. So a, a national body, of people and they were able to get follow-up data from three to six months out from infection on 3,700 people in South Africa, both people who were hospitalized for COVID and not hospitalized for COVID. 151 of those people were living with HIV. So again, we're talking smaller numbers um, than the EMR data uh, were followed up. And um, in this study, people with HIV were actually less likely to report persistent symptoms um, uh, than people without HIV. So I think I think that's that's interesting, um, and I think what this tells us is that um, what we see in the United States here uh, may be different than what we would see in in other populations, uh, people living with HIV. Um, so I think there's a real need for data um, on this question outside of the United States. But clear, I think the data is pretty good, especially with this EMR study that in the United States. HIV does appear to be a risk factor for long COVID. You're more likely to have long COVID if you are living with HIV. Um, so I wanna talk now about neurocognitive long COVID because there's <clears throat> kind of more investigators in this space. There's a little bit more data here um, and it's not, and there's some conflicting results here. So that's something that I wanna kind of talk about. Um, so here's a warm up question. So. COVID-19, now we're just talking about COVID-19 in general. So we're talking about what do you know about long COVID and neurocognitive outcomes. Does COVID-19 increase the risk of which of these things? Cognitive impairment, dementia, psychotic disorder, seizures, or all of the above? Yeah, so most people say cognitive impairment, and we've been talking about that a lot today. 
And then a sizable number say all of the above, and it's all of the above that's the correct answer here. Um, and this is data from um, a study published in Lancet Psychiatry by Maxine Tuckett um, that actually we touched on briefly earlier in this course. So we don't talk a lot. We haven't talked yet a lot about kind of incident diagnosis of uh, dementia, psychotic disorders, and seizures. But this study showed very clearly from another, again, another large EMR database that um, looked at several countries, actually, that having COVID increases your risk of not only cognitive deficit, but dementia, psychotic disorders, and seizures for at least two years following COVID. Um, and it, it may persist longer. Two years was just the cutoff of their study. Um, and importantly, they showed that older people who got a diagnosis of dementia or seizures after COVID were more likely to die. Um, they showed that Omicron, so then the question, one question people have is, well, you know, is Omicron versus other variants, is that gonna decrease or increase your risk for these outcomes? And surprisingly, they show that Omicron compared to earlier variants was associated with basically the same risks of neurological and psychiatric outcomes. Um, so that's pretty sobering to me. So, um, so I'm just showing here a figure from a review paper by Hannah Davis and Eric Topol um, uh, that actually Dr. Paredes also um, showed a little bit earlier in the talk, just outlining some of the recognized symptoms and diagnoses associated with long COVID. So we've talked um, actually about many of these things, um, uh, but we haven't talked about things like tinnitus. This is actually something I've heard in, in my own clinic practice that people are complaining of. And then here are some of these incident diagnoses that um, we're seeing more often or that we think might be going on in neurocognitive long COVID. And there's actually been some really great science in this area. Um, so this is a cartoon from a review in the New England Journal um, and the review is about collaborative work done by groups at Sanford and Yale and others that was published in Cell about a year ago. So the investigators in this case used a mouse model to demonstrate that mild SARS-CoV-2 infection led to activation of microglia. And I think Dr. Paredes may have covered this also. Um, so in mice, it led to loss of myelinated axons. It inhibited neurogenesis in the hippocampus. And that um, inhibited neurogenesis could actually explain imp impaired memory formation. Um, and then they found that the activation of microglia was mediated by CCL11 and also showed that people with long COVID and cognitive deficits had higher levels of circulating CCL11. So they, and then when they gave CCL11 to the mice, they actually recapitulated some of the symptoms. Um, and I mentioned this in this talk because um, actually I've seen that in my own cohort in preliminary studies, but this is a study um, that was uh, shown, that was presented at CROI and um, presented by Daniel Adesi from the University of Miami and showed that people living with HIV post-COVID had higher levels of CCL11 than HIV negative people post-COVID. So that makes you wonder, maybe people with HIV may be even more likely to have neurocognitive deficits post-COVID than people without HIV. Um, so I promised I would uh, talk about the third paper on this topic from the LINK cohort. So this, this is it. So th um, this is a paper published in JCI a couple months ago um, by that the LINK cohort group. Um, and in this case, they're really interested in understanding how um, other viral infections might impact risk for long COVID. And they show that um, living, with living with HIV is a risk factor for neurocognitive long COVID, um, as is um, evidence of recent reactivation of EBV. And then very pr provocatively, um, in my opinion, um, that having CMV or having serologic evidence for prior CMV infection 
um, seems to be protective against neurocognitive on COVID. Um, and I think the, the mechanisms of this are still unknown. This is observational data that, you know, I'm sure they're working very hard to, to understand why this is. Um, but the jury is still out. So, you know, this study showed that HIV is linked to more neurocognitive long COVID. And then also at CROI earlier this year, there was a very nice study uh, presented by Dr. Farron Ocampo um, from Serena Spudich's group. And they examined outcomes in the RV254 study of Thai people who initiated ART during acute infection. So this cohort is maybe not like the general population of people living with HIV in the United States. They're mostly young, predominantly male, um, and very low rate of comorbidities, less than 10%, median age of 32. So it's a really young population. In addition, they also were treated during acute HIV infection. So one might, we, we don't know this, but one might postulate that they might have less, you know, a smaller reservoir and less chronic inflammation um, than people who were, you know, had viral replication of HIV for years before they were treated. But in this group, so this like kind of specialized group, um, they had actually already been doing cognitive and mood assessments. And so they were able to identify a little less than 300 people who were diagnosed with COVID um, between April, 2021 and September, 2022. So mostly the Omicron variant, and um, mostly vaccinated, over 80% were vaccinated. Um, they, they did well during acute COVID, less, you know, 2% required supplemental oxygen or less. Um, but it's really cool that they had that pre-COVID um, cognitive and mood assessment. So they did this then, and then also eight or more weeks after COVID. And they found that generally the cognitive and the mood assessments stayed the same. Um, so I'm pointing out here that there may be a trend towards decreased performance in the grooved pe pegboard test. And it measures a couple things, one of which is psychomotor speed. And I'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, but this is an exciting um, study, you know, that has CSF data, has pre-COVID -co pre um, cognitive assessments. And they were actually reward awarded at RF1 to uh, further study the neuropathogenesis of long COVID with imaging and more, um, more CSF studies. So I'll we'll be very excited to see how this, how this group um, progresses in the future. Um, and then I wanna share with you just two slides on my own long COVID cohort um, that I've done in collaboration with Michael Peluso and Alan Landay. So in this cohort, we enrolled about 73 people living with HIV within a month of um, COVID diagnosis and then 78 people with HIV who had never had COVID along with um, HIV negative groups. So we had people without HIV who had recent COVID within the past month and then people without HIV who didn't have COVID. And we thought it was really important to have control groups um, uh, without COVID and then you know without HIV for these groups um, because sometimes adjusting um, for these outcomes can be difficult because the populations can vary. Um, so we follow them with surveys for a year and we give them neurocognitive assessments um, at one and four months post-COVID and sample blood at those times too. Um, so we presented these at CROI and they'll hopefully be coming out in publication um, later this year. Um, and we find that anxiety and brain fog, I'm showing you here on the bottom, um, is highly reported in all groups after COVID, um, but memory problems and confusion were more highly reported um, in people with HIV. These are self-reports. Um, and then we also have the data on their cognitive assessments. We do 11 different cognitive assessments. We have, um, partner with a neuropsychiatrist here at Johns Hopkins for this. 
And this graphic is, is just to show you the distribution of these neurocognitive scores for the four groups with each group being a different color. Kind of the, one of the, the take home points from this is that we actually saw that um, the OTMTA, which is a measure of processing speed, which is similar to that groove pegboard test um, in terms of that measure psychomotor speed, um, that seemed to be impaired um, after COVID um, in both groups. And uh, the one thing that we found was there was actually a lot of impairment in the group with living with HIV. Um, but when you look, when you compare them to a group with HIV who didn't have COVID, they're, they're actually pretty similar. So the, the changes that we see um, are more pronounced in people without, without HIV because I think they're starting from a place, um, well, kind of a different cognitive place essentially um, in many cases. And our collaborator, Dr. Van Estral, was telling us that um, it, you know, it's well known that certain infections, including HIV, can, can affect um, these cognitive scores. Um, so this is just the second slide I'll show uh, from our cohort. So I'm showing here some preliminary work that we're doing assessing activation of immune networks. So on the left here are associations of different cytokines with each other. We did a panel of 33 at one um, at that top in four months post COVID. And what we see um, overall in here is kind of um, a person by person um, assessment of the density of these immune networks. And so what we see is that at one month post COVID in all people, um, there's these kind of more of these um, cytokines are upregulated and associated with each other. And that seems to calm down by four months in people without HIV. Um, and it does a little bit in people with HIV, but it seems like these networks take longer to kind of to quiet down in people with HIV. And so this is just with maybe uh, like 30% of our samples. So we have more um, data coming soon on this. Um, so yeah, so to summarize literature on long COVID and HIV. So we have a good EMR study um, that's still at a preprint phase. So um, still in the peer review phase, but it shows that HIV is a risk factor for long COVID in the population of people living with HIV in the USA, but global data is still scant. And so we still need that. Um, there's conflicting data on whether people with HIV are more likely to experience neurocognitive long COVID or not, um, uh, based on the couple of studies that I showed you. And I think in that space, we need kind of larger and more global studies again of people living with HIV. Um, it's harder to do these in these kind of smaller cohort studies um, than it is in EMR studies. Um, and, you know, we also need to have kind of updated data now that some of this data was collected pre-vaccination, you know, pre-Omicron era. And so we need to have more studies that are in the Omicron and XBB era um, in populations that are mostly vaccinated. Um, uh, and I think that those kind of studies will really help us answer the question. Um, thanks so much, and I'm happy to answer any questions. Thank you. That was really terrific. It's just wonderful to see the fruits of all the work that's gone into this um, starting to come together and, and yield some, some data. Um, we have a few questions from the audience. Please do put your questions in the Q&A. Um, and the first one is really this methodologic challenge that I think you alluded to, but given that HIV can increase um, the rates of some of these symptoms or conditions, um, you know, what what is, is it really, can you conclude that it's HIV that's increasing the risk of PASC um, versus people with HIV having these things 
already, or I guess maybe another way to say is, you know, compared to a demographically matched um, control group, are we are we really certain that rates are higher in people with HIV, or do we need more uh, controlling for confounding and other factors? Yeah, con adequate controlling is, I think, one of the most important things um, when designing these studies. So, for example, in the um, study out of Case Western, they propensity matched on, I want to say, 16 different factors. So I think that that kind of work when you have a lot of people, like they had 28,000 people living with HIV and then, you know, over a million uh, non-people without HIV that they could work with. I think that's very important. I think that's a well-done study. Um, in ours, we did try to do that. So we tried to get a demographically matched uh, group of people with HIV who didn't have COVID. And that actually showed us that, you know, these, you know, we had seen initially higher scores post-COVID in people with HIV, but when we then compared it to people with HIV who never had COVID, it was actually the same. Um, so we didn't see as we didn't really see much of a difference. So all the differences we saw, we think were actually related to HIV. HIV is a, um, as we all know, um, affects neurocognition um, more so than than COVID. But in our HIV negative groups, we actually saw um, worsen processing speed. That was a clear signal. Yeah. Great. And then I think in these EMR studies, another question is whether the cohorts control for healthcare engagement. Um, in some settings, people with HIV are more likely to have regular and consistent healthcare engagement and thus might report things more frequently. H how do you deal with that in these kinds of analyses? Yeah, you know, that's something that cohort studies are good at because then you just give the same assessment to people um, at the same time. But as much as you say, it's much more difficult in EMR studies. Um, you know, when the World Health Organization um, published their report, they actually collected hospitalization data from everyone with, with HIV or without HIV. So in that sense, everyone is kind of getting the same care in terms of they're in the hospital, but what kind of care did they receive before uh, and after is different. But you're right. Yeah, I'm, you know, they'd be more likely to see a physician. When they see a physician, they're more likely to report a symptom, um, right? So... And another question, just <clears throat> this is clarifying something that was on one of your slides, bullet four and slide 11, which noted that vaccination prior to infection potentiates these post-acute outcomes in people with HIV. Does this mean that the conditions listed will be worse or more frequent or both in vaccinated uh, people with HIV post-COVID in those who I probably, I probably used the wrong word. I meant to say it decreases the risk of- Okay, uh, yeah. That's really, I think, a really important point because we don't, I think, want the message to be that vaccination, it, that's not what the data has shown anyway, that the vaccination would, ma would make it worse. Right, no, the vaccination definitely made um, it less likely to have these poor outcomes. So you would have a better outcome. Okay, good. And then in terms of, you know, really the future directions for research on long COVID and people living with HIV, um, and, and thinking towards our next speaker, we'll be talking about therapeutics and, and clinical trials. You know, wh where do you think the highest priority is for, for research in this area of long COVID in people living with HIV? Yeah, honestly, I think um, a global EMR study is what we need um, because um, just because most people living with HIV are outside of the United States. So I think I think we need to understand what is the risk uh, for people living outside of the United States. And that way, you know, if they are at increased risk outside of the United States as they are inside, then them, they might be targeted for any kind of um, treatments um, or prevent actually preventive measures that would be coming down the pike. So I think a global look is the most important thing. And then beyond that, um, 
you know, I'm a viral pathogenesis person, so I, I'm very interested in understanding the pathogenesis. I think that's that's a, that's a must. You know, we need we need to identify biomarkers as endpoints for trials. We need to understand what's causing this so we can stop it. Yeah, and I think also just making sure that people living with HIV are well represented in the studies that are done, so we can interpret the results. I think it's going to be important as well. So absolutely, yes, I meant to say that as well. Too. <laughs> Having representation in these studies is very important because if we don't have people living with HIV in these studies, then then we can't guide our patients. We can't give the best data, best evidence-based data. Well, you know, thank Judy, you. Judy, I'll turn to Carlos, yeah. If I may say, that's, that's so important because a lot of the trials, vaccine studies, a lot of the therapeutic trials in COVID specifically excluded people with HIV. And that was really bad, right? I mean, you exclude, and then you exclude also women of reproductive age, pregnant women, and then we're asking the question, oh, how does it work here? Well, we excluded them from the trial. And I think we really need to be careful. Sometimes companies want you know, such a pure population, but then you have no generalizability and you really run into problems. So we really have to push for better representation in clinical trials. Absolutely, all scientists, we should do that. There must be better representation of people living with HIV in research. Okay, great. Well, um, that's a great segue. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Antar, and I'll turn it now over to Dr. Del Rio to introduce our last speaker.